Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. Today, we have episode 291 for September 26th, 2022. And I had a nice trip. I went up to the Boston area to visit my daughter. And uh, turns out that uh, Bruce Schneier also lives up there. He lives up uh, Cambridge somewhere, I think. And uh, so I reached out to Bruce and said, hey, you know, I'm going to be in the area. Would you like to get a drink sometime? So, yeah, I went and had a couple of drinks with Bruce Schneier. It was great. Went to uh, the Longfellow Bar in, uh, on Harvard Square. He teaches at Harvard uh, as one of the many, many things he does. And uh, it was great. It was good to meet him finally in person. And he, great guy, as I fully expected. And we're confirmed for the 300th episode. He will be my guest uh, coming up on the big 300. Uh, so that was great. Also, when I was up there, uh, if you've ever read the book Hackers by Stephen Levy, it's it's kind of the definitive history of hacking. I'm only partway through it, but I read the beginning and it's chronologically ordered. So one of the very first, if not the very first recognized group of hackers uh, was this group of students uh, or workers from, M uh, from MIT called the Tech Model Railroad Club. And they had these model trains, these big elaborate mo model trains set up, but they were also uh, part of the team that got these new computers and uh, yeah, the computers back then were a really big deal, extremely expensive and very rare. And But th these guys started figuring out how these computers worked and started getting these computers to do things they didn't normally do. In other words, hacking. Anyway, so the TMRC, the Tech Model Railroad Club, was based at MIT. And the original room was moved around. And actually, had, they, they had to move it to make room for another building renovation they were doing. And so what's left of that has been moved to Building 52. Everything at MIT is in numbered buildings. And so my daughter is working at MIT, and so she has a badge that gets her into most of the buildings. And I went to go find Building 52, and it was this totally nondescript building and I, with like one door on the side. And that door had a card reader. Uh, otherwise was completely closed. So because uh, I happened to have a card, I was able to get in. I found it. It was closed, but it had a big uh, open window that showed all the trains and stuff. So I got a real kick out of that. So anyway, I had a great trip, uh, a lot of fun. Of course, it was great to see my family. We don't get together as much anymore. We're all kind of scattered now that the, the kids are out of the out of the house. Uh, so it was really great to get uh, my mom and the, and the girls together uh, in Boston. And we had a great time. Anyway, enough about me. We've got a big news show for you today. Lots of topics. It's been longer than usual since the last news show, since I kind of shuffled up the the schedule and did two interviews in a row. So it's been three weeks, and there's been a lot of stories. I had to go through and call these out and pick out the ones that I thought were the most important. If you've got a D-Link router, you're going to want to listen to this article. There's a new botnet malware thing going around that's affecting unpatched D-Link routers. Uber was hacked. I'm sure you saw that on the news. Uh, so we're going to talk about that, of course. Morgan Stanley was fined $35 million after, it turns out, they sold a whole bunch of old hard drives uh, and didn't wipe them first. So a lot of customer data was found on that. That's not a good, that is never a good thing. I'm going to tell you about another weird browser. It's not really a glitch. It's kind of a feature that might be potentially stealing passwords or personal identifiable information, PII, uh, in both the Google Chrome browser and the Microsoft Edge browser. And then I found this really interesting 
somewhat creepy audio tool that lets you change your voice really easily and make you sound like somebody else. And thankfully, since this is an audio tool, I will be able to demonstrate that for you. The Washington Post has an article about health apps and how they are mining your data. And you might think, well, wait, what about HIPAA? What about, you know, healthcare privacy in the United States? Nope, <laughs> it's not really working. I'll explain that one. Next up, I've got an article about yet another data mining tool that is being used by the U.S. government. Uh, the claims are truly audacious, and I'm not sure how accurate they are, but nevertheless, it's a pretty scary story. Then we're going to talk about the Customs and Border Patrol, the CBP, here in the United States, and a rather disturbing new report about how they take people's phone data and how long they keep it. And then a follow-up from that from the Washington Post on some interesting ways that you might be able to prevent that. Then the markup did a really good article about your cars collecting your data and who that data is being sent to. And finally, another article about facial recognition and how one company is proposing to use that in schools to try to judge the emotional state of the students in the classroom. And then finally, as promised, uh, iOS 16 for iPhones has just come out along with their new iPhone 14s. And there's some really cool security and privacy features in iOS 16, and that in my tip of the week will be walking you through some of those features. Also, I've been promising you that I would have a listener Q&A feature. I will start taking your questions and answering them on the air. I've finally got all that sorted out, how I'm going to do it, and I will give you all the details after the news. All right, plenty of stuff to get to, so let's get right to it. All right, first up, quick note for those of you who might have a D-Link branded Wi-Fi router or a router at home, there is a new bit of malware going around uh, that is attacking these routers from the outside, from the WAN side, with a vulnerability that needs to be patched, and so you want to get this done ASAP. So I, I kind of pared this down, but this has the main info. This is from Bleeping Computer. The Mirai malware botnet variant known as Moobot, M-O-O-B-O-T, has reemerged in a new attack wave that started early last month, targeting vulnerable D-Link routers with a mix of old and new exploits. Moobot was discovered by analysts at Fortinet in December of 2021, targeting a flaw in HickVision cameras to spread quickly and enlist a large number of devices into its distributed denial-of-service army. Today, the malware has refreshed its targeting scope, which is typical for botnets looking for untapped pools of vulnerable devices they can ensnare. The vendor has released security updates to address these flaws, but not all users have applied the patches yet, especially the last two, which became known in March and May of this year. Users of compromised D-Link devices may notice internet speed drops, unresponsiveness, router overheating, or inexplicable DNS configuration changes, all common signs of botnet infections. The best way to shut the door to MooBot is to apply the available firmware updates on your D-Link router. If you're using an old and unsupported device, you should configure it to prevent remote access by, uh, to the admin panel. If you may have been compromised already, you should perform a reset from the corresponding physical button, change your admin password, and then install the latest security updates from the vendor. So I've talked about this many times. You really need to know how to get into your router and, and configure it. So you need to figure out what the IP address is of your router or how to get to the admin page for your router. This is done from your network, so you'll need to be logged into your uh, home network to do this, hopefully, to get to the admin page, figure out who makes your router, 
uh, and get the manual for it. And you can download this on the web and figure out how to get your admin page, learn how to log in as admin. It probably has a default password if it's, if it's older. Some of the newer ones are finally starting to have more randomly generated passwords. But either way, log in as admin, change the password to something you know, make it really good and strong, put it in your password manager so you don't have to type it. And then make sure that your software is up to date. And there should be somewhere in, on the router admin page to look for updates. And then it should explain to you how to install those updates. Most modern routers just have a button you can click to check for updates and another button you can click to install updates. But it, it'll tell you what to do. And in particular, if you've got a D-Leak router, you definitely need to get this done ASAP because there are known uh, vulnerabilities in D-Leak routers that are causing them to be exploited. All right, next up, the Uber hack. I'm sure you saw this. It was all over the news. Uh, and this is from Wired, uh, and it talks about what happened there. On Thursday evening, and I think this would have been two Thursdays ago by the time you hear this, rideshare giant Uber confirmed that it was responding to a quote-unquote cybersecurity incident and was contacting law enforcement about the breach. An entity that claims to be an individual 18-year-old hacker took responsibility for the attack, bragging to multiple security researchers about the steps they took to breach the company. Invoking time-honored breach notification language, Uber also said on Friday that it has, quote, no evidence that the incident involved access to sensitive user data like trip history, unquote. Screenshots leaked by the hacker, though, indicate that Uber's systems may have been deeply and thoroughly compromised and that anything the hacker didn't access may have been the result of limited time rather than limited opportunity. The attacker claims that they first gained access to company systems by targeting an individual employee and repeatedly sending them multi-factor authentication login notifications. After more than an hour, the attacker claims they contacted the same target on WhatsApp, pretending to be an Uber IT person and saying that the MFA notifications would stop once the target approved the login. Such attacks, sometimes known as MFA fatigue or exhaustion attacks, take advantage of authentication systems in which account owners simply have to approve a login through a push of a notification on the device rather than through the other means, such as providing a randomly generated code. MFA prompt fishes have become more and more popular with attackers, and in general, hackers have increasingly developed phishing attacks to work around two-factor authentication as more companies deploy it. The recent Twilio breach, for example, illustrated how dire the consequences can be when a company that provides multi-factor authentication services is itself compromised. Organizations that require physical authentication keys for logins, those are like YubiKeys, have had success defending themselves against such remote social engineering attacks. Once the attacker had initial access inside the company, they claimed they were able to access resources shared on the network that included scripts for Microsoft's automation and management program, PowerShell. The attacker said that one of the scripts contained hard-coded credentials for an administrator account uh, of the access management system, Thycotic. With control of this account, the attacker claimed they were able to gain access tokens for Uber's cloud infrastructure, including Amazon Web Services, Google's G Suite, VMware's vSphere dashboard, the authentication manager Duo, and the critical identity and access management service One Login. One independent security engineer described the One Login account access the Uber hacker seems to have had access to as, quote, the golden ticket jackpot, unquote. And a continuing quote from this uh, researcher, he said, that's God. There's nothing they can't access. It's Disneyland. It's a blank check at the candy shop and a Christmas morning all rolled together. But sure, customer ride data wasn't impacted. Okay, unquote. For now, the full scope of the situation inside the ride sharing giant remains unknown. All right. So this is this is weird because this particular hacker, it was really 
touting what he's done, which sounds like an 18 year old. But if what they say here really did happen and this person had the keys to the kingdom, then yeah, there's really nothing that the hacker could not have done. I mean, this, this was horrible, horrible security on, on Uber's part. And if any bad things come out of this, there's almost certainly going to be a class action lawsuit. But this is an example of how not to do security. If you're going to be known in how to handle a cybersecurity incident and how to set up your security, the last thing you want to be is the counterexample. Speaking of which, Morgan Stanley is going to be a counterexample about how not to treat customer data on your hard drives. Uh, this is from Ars Technica. Morgan Stanley on Tuesday agreed to pay the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, in the United States, a $35 million penalty for data security lapses that included unencrypted hard drives from decommissioned data centers being resold on auction sites without first being wiped. The SEC action said the improper disposal of thousands of hard drives starting in 2016 was part of an extensive failure over a five-year period to safeguard customers' data as required by legal regulations. The agency said that the failures also included the improper disposal of hard drives and backup tapes when decommissioning servers in local branches. In all, the SEC said the data for 15 million customers was exposed. Much of the failure stemmed from the 2016 hire of a moving company with no experience or expertise in data destruction services to decommission thousands of hard drives and servers containing the data of millions of customers. The moving company received 53 RAID arrays, and a RAID array is just a kind of fancy file server, that collectively contained roughly 1,000 hard drives, and it also removed about 8,000 backup tapes from one of the Morgan Stanley data centers. The unnamed moving company initially contracted with an IT specialist to wipe or destroy any sensitive data stored on the drives. Eventually, the moving company stopped working with that specialist and began selling the storage drives to a company that in turn sold them at auction. The new company was never vetted by Morgan Stanley or approved as a contractor or subcontractor in the decommissioning project. In 2017, more than a year after the data center's decommissioning, Morgan Stanley officials received an email from an IT consultant in Oklahoma informing them that hard drives he purchased from an online auction site contained Morgan Stanley data. In a complaint, SEC officials wrote, quote, In that email, consultant informed MSSB, that's Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, that, quote, you're a major financial institution and should be following some very stringent guidelines on how to deal with retiring hardware, or at the very least, getting some kind of verification of data destruction from the vendors you sell equipment to, unquote. MSSB eventually repurchased the hard drives in the consultant's possession, and that's the end of the SEC complaint quote. The SEC action also said that many of the storage devices didn't have encryption turned on, though the option existed. Even after the investment firm began using encryption options in 2018, only new data written to the disks was protected. In some cases, data still wasn't properly encrypted because of a flaw in an unidentified vendor's product. All right, so there were lots of mistakes made here. Honestly, the most egregious one, as far as I'm concerned, is that the hard drives were not bulk encrypted by default. I mean, that would have basically solved this problem. You, you know, you talk about making sure you wipe your hard drives, you know, before you sell a computer or wiping your phone before you sell it or auction it off or whatever. There's the same thing going on here, except in this case, it was thousands of drives and had 15 million customers data on it. But if you encrypt it first, if you use hard drive encryption, that's honestly even better than trying to wipe it because in some cases drives do especially solid straight drives ssds do all sorts of funky things to move data around called wear leveling and so that data isn't always 
in the same spot it used to be. So if you go and try to delete it, if if the drive has made several copies of that data elsewhere, you're not going to delete that because the operating system is not going to know about that. So the solution to all of that is make sure that you do full disk encryption from the get-go so that all the data stored in the drive is fully encrypted and can only be read by a computer that has the key. So if you took it out of the computer and threw it in the trash, anybody else who picked that up should not be able to read any of the data on that drive. It should look like noise. It should be completely illegible. But if you are a financial institution governed by regulations and have millions of customers, even if you do that, you should definitely go through the steps to vet the company that you're you're hiring to, you know, repurpose these drives or resell these drives and make sure that they have gone through the process of a strict wiping protocol, which exists. I mean, the government publishes standards on this, on how to securely wipe a hard drive. So anyway, lots of mistakes here, and we, we just try to learn from those mistakes. Okay, next up, this is an article about the, the Google Chrome uh, browser and Microsoft Edge as well, and about how you can inadvertently give away potentially sensitive information to Google and Microsoft if you use their browser's enhanced spell checking feature. So let me read this article from Bleeping Computer. Extended spell check features in Google Chrome and Microsoft Edge web browsers transmit form data, including personally identifiable information, or PII, and in some cases, passwords to Google and Microsoft, respectively. While this may be a known and intended feature of these web browsers, it does raise concerns about what happens to the data after transmission and how safe the practice might be, particularly when it comes to password fields. Both Chrome and Edge ship with basic spell checkers enabled, but features like Chrome's Enhanced Spell Check or Microsoft Editor, when manually enabled by the user, exhibit this potential privacy risk. When using major browsers like Chrome and Edge, your form data is transmitted to Google and Microsoft respectively should enhanced spell check features be enabled. Depending on the website you visit, the form data may itself include PII, including but not limited to social security numbers, social insurance numbers, name, address, email, date of birth, contact information, bank and payment information, and so on. Josh Summit, co-founder and CTO of JavaScript security firm Auto-JS, discovered this issue while testing his company's own scripts. In cases where Chrome Enhanced Spell Check or Edge's Microsoft Editor, which is a spell checker, were, were enabled, basically anything entered into form fields on these browsers was transmitted to Google and Microsoft. And this is a quote from the, the researcher says, quote, furthermore, if you click on show password, the enhanced spell check even sends your password, essentially spell checking your data. Some of the largest websites in the world have exposure to sending Google and Microsoft sensitive user PII, including username, email, and passwords, when users are logging in or filling out forms. An even more significant concern for companies is the exposure this presents to the company's enterprise credentials to internal assets like databases and cloud infrastructure, unquote. So basically what they're saying here is, yeah, it's bad enough if it's your your information that gets transmitted, but if you're working on a company computer, turned on enhanced spell check, and you're entering in like administrator credentials, then you're potentially leaking that information to Google and Microsoft. All right, back to the article. Users may often rely on the show password option on sites where copy-pasting passwords is not allowed, for example, or when they suspect they've mistyped it. And I'll come back to that in a second. Although the transmission of form fields is happening securely over HTTPS, it may not be imminently clear as to what happens to user data once it reaches the third party. In this example, Google Server. And this is a quote from a Google spokesperson. Quote, the enhanced spell check feature requires an opt-in from the user. 
Note that this is in contrast to the basic spell checker that is enabled in Chrome by default and does not transmit data to Google. To review if enhanced spell check is enabled on your Chrome browser, copy paste the following link to your address bar. And of course, you'll need to look up the article probably if you want to just copy paste it, but I will tell you in a second. You could then choose to turn it off or on. And it's a Chrome colon slash slash settings slash question mark search equals enhanced plus spell plus check. So basically you're going to the Chrome settings and you're looking for their enhanced spell check feature so that you uh, can find it and quickly turn it off if you don't want to use it anymore. As evident from the screenshot, which you can't see, the feature's description explicitly states that with enhanced spell check enabled, quote, text that you type in the browser is sent to Google, unquote, which I'm sure you all read, right? You, you went through and checked every single setting and read all the warnings, right? Right. As for Edge, Microsoft Editor Spelling and Grammar Checker is a browser add-on that needs to be explicitly installed for this behavior to take place. Reacting to AutoJS's report, both AWS and LastPass mitigated the issue. In LastPass's case, the remedy was reached by adding a simple HTML attribute, spell check equals false, to the password field. The spell check HTML attribute, when left out from form text input fields, is usually assumed to be usually assumed by web browsers to be true by default. An input field with spell check explicitly set to false will not be processed through the web browser's spell checker. All right, so a few things to, to cover here. First of all, you should always assume today that anything you start to type into form fields on a web page can still be read by the website you're on or potentially even other JavaScript that's running in that page, which may be some totally other site. So you can't just count on the fact that you can start filling it out and then never click the submit button. You know, I've done this myself where I start filling out a form and then I when I when I realize all the different things they're asking me for, I give up and say, there's no way I'm sending you all that data and I'll just go away. But it is possible with JavaScript, and in this case with the enhanced spell checker, for the data that you're typing to be exfiltrated before you click submit. And that is what's going on here. So with these enhanced spell check features on Chrome and Edge, if you have them enabled, the enhancement is it's, it sends this data off to Google servers or Microsoft servers to do more intensive spell checking and grammar checking and stuff. So that means that the stuff you're typing in these form fields, which might be, you know, private information is being sent to Google and Microsoft. Now we can hope that, you know, they're doing it securely and they're throwing that data away as soon as they're done spell checking it, but who knows? And one more thing I've got to say, one little rant is I absolutely hate it and do not understand websites that do not let you paste passwords. I, I don't know what threat it is they're trying to avoid with that little feature, but it really ticks me off. If you're using a password manager and you've got long, crazy, unique passwords, those are really painful to type in by hand. You're not supposed to have to type them in by hand. That's the whole point. I do not understand the websites that, that block the ability to copy and paste passwords. All right, let's move on. All right, so this next one's kind of a fun one, and it's also potentially creepy, but it's about this new tool called co-recast just created by this guy because we could do this now that lets you change your voice and make you sound like somebody else. And, and I'll have a demo for you here in a minute, which will prove the point. So this is a, a clip from Ars Technica. Thanks to a web demo of a new AI tool called co-recast, that's K-O-E, you can transform up to 60 seconds of your voice into different styles, including an anime character, a deep male narrator, an ASMR whisper, and more. 
It's an eye-opening preview of a potential commercial product currently undergoing private alpha testing. CoRecast emerged recently from a Texas-based developer named Asara Near, who is working independently to develop a desktop app with the aim of allowing people to change their voice in real time through other apps like Zoom and Discord. And this is a quote from here. He says, quote, my goal is to help people express themselves in any way that makes them happier, unquote. This kind of realistic AI-powered voice transformation technology isn't new. Google made waves with similar tech in 2018, and audio deepfakes of celebrities have caused controversy for several years now. But seeing this capability in an independent startup funded by one person shows how far AI vocal synthesis tech has come and perhaps hints at how close voice transformation might be to widespread adoption through a low-cost or open-source release. Recast supports 10 different voices and more are on the way. And this is also from near uh, quote, it's currently undecided if we will be offering existing voices of celebrities or other well-known persons, unquote. Offering celebrity voices or those imitating non-celebrity living persons may pose ethical and legal questions, however. Yeah, no kidding. When asked about the potential misuse of recast, near replied, quote, as with any technology, it's possible for there to be both positives and negatives, but I think the vast majority of humanity consists of wonderful people and will benefit greatly from this, unquote. Near also pointed out that Recast includes a terms of service policy prohibiting illegal and hateful usage. As for a release timeline, Near is pursuing commercial options but isn't ruling out an open source release, which could potentially have an impact similar to Stable Diffusion, I'll talk about that in a minute, by putting realistic audio deepfakes into the hands of many without hard restrictions. As deep learning technology continues to peel away the 20th century concept, or some might say illusion, of media as a fixed and accurate record of reality, we are looking at a near future in which digital representations of a human's voice, much like images and video, will be one more thing you can't take at face value without significant trust in the source. Still, the technology could empower many people who might otherwise be discriminated against while doing business or simply having fun online. All right, so a couple things. First of all, Stable Diffusion is another really bizarre but very cool AI-powered tool that lets you describe what you want a picture to look like, and the AI will generate a picture for you. And it comes up with some remarkable things. So look up Stable Diffusion online, and you'll you'll see some examples. It's, it's crazy. I've actually downloaded the software because it's open source, and I want to play with it myself. I haven't had a chance to do so yet, but this is just going to show that this technology is becoming mainstream. It's becoming common. And if this guy doesn't open source his project, somebody else will. There will be open source projects where you'll be able to take your voice and alter it to make it sound like somebody else. And in this case, the tool makes it sound like, I don't know if this guy sampled real people's voices to do this, uh, to get the, the voice pattern that he used, or if the, the voice patterns themselves are somehow randomly generated. I'm not sure. But I'm going to give you a little taste of what this sounds like. All right, so here we go. These next clips are me. Here's an example of me with the voice David. And here's another example with me using the voice Hannah. And here's one with the ASMR effect. So again, to be clear, all three of those were me talking just like I'm talking right now. Even the ASMR one, I was not whispering when I recorded that. I was talking at a regular volume in a regular way like I am right now. The tool took my voice and made it sound like I was whispering. Now, I got to admit, as a technologist, that all is really cool. But when I put my privacy and security hat on, it's worrisome. Because now what that really means is that I can talk like somebody else. 
So let's say I want to spearfish some company. I want to try to get some money or get some credentials or something. And I know the CEO of this company has given a lot of online lectures or, or videos. So I go find her online, find videos of this person talking, get her voice separated and recorded and train my system to replicate that voice. And then using that voice, I call somebody at the IT department uh, of the company and say, Hey, yeah, you know, this is the CEO. I need you to do me a favor really quick. You know, I, I forgot my password for this. Tell me what my password is or reset it for me and tell me what the new password is. Or, or, Hey, I need access to this other thing over here, this special document, which send me this email, but, Oh, I'm not, I'm away from my computer. Send it to this other email address. Or you can get up to all sorts of shenanigans, right? If you're the person you're calling would recognize your voice and, and assume that because I recognize the voice, it's okay to give away this information that my, it's my CEO, it's, or it's my boss or whatever, you know, I better do what they said or I'm going to be in trouble or, you know, maybe I'll get a, a special attaboy when I, when I've come through and save their bacon because they need some special emergency thing. That's been done already in other ways, but this just makes it a lot easier when I can actually sound like the person who's making that request. And of course, this, for political reasons, this is going to be bad. I mean, you're going to have people using this to say really horrible things or very controversial things using a politician's voice and releasing it and saying it's real. So this was a much longer article, but I left that last paragraph in there because I think that's the real takeaway for everybody here is don't trust anything you see or, or hear anymore at face value. You've got to know where it came from. You need multiple sources. You know, if it's anything controversial, if it gets your dander up, if it gets you worked up, question it certainly before you share it and just understand that we are in an era now where it's possible for these things to be faked and faked. Well, if you want to try the tool yourself, there's a link in the show notes. You just go to the website and you can record, like it says up to 20 seconds, you pick the voice you want, and then you click submit and then it will alter it and you can play it back and you can download the, the file if you want. Like I did, it's I, admittedly, it, it's fun to play with. So if you're curious at all, uh, go to the show notes, find the link and check it out. All right, I got a few more articles, and these were uh, these were long articles. I've tried to pare them back as much as possible, but they're a little bit longer, but they're important. Uh, so first, this is from the Washington Post, and this is about health apps that are sharing too much information about you with advertisers. Digital healthcare has its advantages. Privacy isn't one of them. In a nation with millions of uninsured families and a shortage of health professionals, many of us turn to healthcare apps and websites for accessible information or even potential treatment. But when you fire up a symptom checker or digital therapy app, you might be unknowingly sharing your concerns with more than just the app maker. Facebook has been caught receiving patient information from hospital websites through its tracker tool. Google stores our health-related internet searches. Mental health apps leave room in their privacy policies to share data with unlisted third parties. Users have few protections under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, when it comes to digital data and and popular health apps share information with a broad collection of advertisers, according to our investigation. Most of the data being shared doesn't directly identify us. For example, apps may share a string of numbers called an identifier that's linked to our phones rather than our names. Not all the recipients of this data are in the ad business. Some provide analytics showing developers how users move around their apps. And companies argue that sharing which pages, which pages you visit, such as a page titled Depression, isn't the same as revealing sensitive health concerns. But privacy experts say sending user identifiers along with keywords from the content we visit opens consumers to unnecessary risk. Big data collectors such as brokers or ad companies could piece together someone's behavior or concerns using multiple pieces of information or identifiers. 
That means depression could be one more data point that helps companies target or profile us. To give you a sense of the data sharing that goes on behind the scenes, the Washington Post enlisted the help of several privacy experts and companies, including researchers at DuckDuckGo, which makes a variety of online privacy tools. After their findings were shared with us, we independently verified their claims with a tool called MITM Proxy, MITM is short for man in the middle, which allowed us to view the contents of web traffic. What we learned was that several popular Android health apps, including Drugs.com Medication Guide, WebMD Symptom Checker, and Period Calendar Period Tracker, gave advertisers the information they'd need to market to people or groups of consumers based on their health concerns. The Drugs.com Android app, for example, sent data to more than 100 outside entities, including advertising companies, DuckDuckGo said. Terms inside those data transfers included herpes, HIV, Adderall, which is a drug to treat uh, attention deficit or hyperactivity disorder, diabetes, and pregnancy. These words came alongside device identifiers, which raised questions about privacy and targeting. Drugs.com said it's not transmitting any data that counts as, quote, sensitive personal information, unquote, and that its ads are relevant to the page content, not to the individual viewing the page. When the post pointed out that in one case, Drugs.com appeared to send an outside company the user's first and last name, a false name DuckDuckGo used for its testing, it said that it never intended for users to input their names into the quote-unquote profile name field and that it will stop transmitting the contents of that field. Among the terms WebMD shared with advertising companies, along with user identifiers, were addiction and depression, according to DuckDuckGo. WebMD declined to comment. Period Calendar shared information, including identifiers, with dozens of outside companies, including advertisers, according to our investigation. The developer didn't respond to requests for comment. We consent to these apps' privacy practices when we accept their privacy policies. But few of us have time to wade through the legal ease, says Andrew Crawford, senior counsel at the Center for Democracy and Technology. And this is a quote from Andrew. says, quote, We click through quickly and accept agree without really contemplating the downstream potential trade-offs, unquote. Those trade-offs could take a few forms like our information landing in the hands of data sellers, employers, insurers, real estate agents, credit granters, or law enforcement privacy experts say. Even small bits of information can be combined to infer big things about our lives, says Lee Tien, a senior staff attorney at the privacy organization Electronic Frontier Foundation. Those tidbits are called proxy data, and more than a decade ago, they helped Target figure out which of its customers were pregnant by looking at who bought unscented lotion. I'll come back to that in a second. And this is a quote from Tian. Tian says, quote, It's very, very easy to identify people if you have enough data. A lot of times companies will tell you, well, that's true, but nobody has all the data. We don't actually know how much data companies have, unquote. So what can you do? There are a few ways to limit the information health apps share, such as not linking the app to your Facebook or Google account during sign-in. That's the sign-in with Google or sign-in with Facebook. I've told you many, many times not to use those. If you use an iPhone, select Ask App Not to Track when prompted. If you're on Android, reset your Android ad ID frequently. Tighten up your phone's privacy settings, whether you use an iPhone or Android. And by the way, there's links on iPhone and Android in that article, so my guess is those are links to how to actually do that. If apps ask for extra data sharing permissions, say no. If you're concerned about the data you've already provided, you can try submitting a data deletion request. Companies aren't obligated to honor the request unless you live in California or the EU because of the state's privacy law, but some companies say they'll delete data for anyone. All right, so back to that, that Target unscented lotion thing. That was a classic story that I tell often when I'm 
describing privacy to people and why this data matters. The canonical case for this was there was a teenage daughter living at home with her parents who was pregnant, uh, had not told their parents she was pregnant, and started getting offers in the mail from Target for baby gear making it quite obvious that they thought their daughter was pregnant. And the dad saw these things, got really ticked off that Target was doing this, and turned out, uh, well, your daughter actually is pregnant, and they found that out because of what she was buying. Because it turns out that the newly pregnant mothers tend to buy a lot of the same things when they're when they're just getting started. Unscented lotion is one, unscented wipes is another, certain types of vitamins are another. So when you put all that information together, you figure out pretty quick that someone at least thinks they're pregnant which is what this article is saying. You start piecing together this, this data and we have building software programs with machine learning to do exactly this. And when you start taking enough bits of data, you can figure things out about people. And very often you can re-identify people, even if they're pseudonymous, if all you have is an ID, but over here you've got a different set of data that does have their name and you figure out they're the same person. Well, then now you've de-anonymized that person. So we gotta be very, very careful about the apps we install and the things that we tell them. Do not assume that it's only going back to the app provider, even if it's a medical app. All right, next up, this is from Vice uh, or Motherboard. They're the same somehow. And this is about yet another data broker that is combining lots of data, crazy amounts of data, and selling it to whoever. In this case, the U.S. military, but they'll probably sell it to anybody. This is really disturbing. So this is a much longer article. Let me just read it and then you'll understand what I mean. Multiple branches of the U.S. military have bought access to a powerful internet monitoring tool that claims to cover over 90% of the world's internet traffic, and which in some cases provides access to people's email data, browsing history, and other, and other information such as their sensitive internet cookies, according to contracting data and other documents reviewed by Motherboard. Additionally, Senator Ron Wyden says that a whistleblower has contacted his office concerning the alleged warrantless use and purchase of this data by NCIS, a civilian law enforcement agency that's part of the Navy, which you've probably seen from TV shows, after filing a complaint through the official reporting process with the Department of Defense, according to a copy of the letter shared by Wyden's office with Motherboard. The material reveals the sale and use of a previously little-known monitoring capability that is powered by data purchased from the private sector. The tool, called Augury, is developed by cybersecurity firm Team Simru, and I'm guessing C-Y-M-R-U, and bundles a massive amount of data together and makes it available to government and other corporate customers as a paid service. In the private industry, cybersecurity analysts use it for following hackers' activity or attributing cyber attacks. In the government world, analysts do the same, but agencies that deal with criminal investigations have also purchased the capability. The military agencies did not describe their use cases for this tool. However, the sale of this tool still highlights how Team Simru obtains the controversial data and then sells it as a business, something that has alarmed multiple sources in the cybersecurity industry. And this is a quote from a description of the Augury platform by a U.S. government uh, procurement record reviewed by Motherboard. It says, quote, The network data includes data from over 550 collection points worldwide to include collection points in Europe, the Middle East, North and South America, Africa, and Asia, and is updated with at least 100 billion new records each day, unquote. It adds that Augury provides access to petabytes of current and historical data. And for those of you at home wondering, a petabyte is 1,000 terabytes, and a terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. It's a, it's a lot. Motherboard has found that the U.S. Navy, Army, Cyber Command, and the Defense Counterintelligence and Cybersecurity Agency have collectively paid at least $3.5 million to access Augury. 
This allows the military to track internet usage using an incredible amount of sensitive information. The Augury platform makes a wide array of different types of internet data available to its users, according to online procurement records. These types of data include packet capture data, often called PCAP, PCAP, related to email, remote desktop, and file sharing protocols. PCAP generally refers to a full capture of data and encompasses very detailed information about network activity. PCAP data includes the requests sent from one server to another and the response from that server too. PCAP data is quote-unquote everything. Zach Edwards, a cybersecurity researcher who has closely followed the data trade, told Motherboard in an online chat. This is a quote from Zach. Quote, it's everything. There's nothing else to capture except the smell of electricity, end quote. Team Simru told Motherboard it does limit what data is returned to users, but did not specify what data actually is provided to a user of the platform. A quote in the cybersecurity industry said, quote, that's insane, unquote when shown that sensitive information like PCAP data was available in Augury. Some private industry users appear to have less access to certain data types in Augury than those listed in the government procurement records. Augury's data can also include web browser activity like Earl's visited and cookie usage, according to the procurement records. Cookies are sensitive files that websites plant onto users' computers when people visit them. Well, sometimes they're sensitive. Given their uniqueness, cookies can be effective for tracking. Google and Facebook, for example, use cookies to follow a particular user from website to website and track their activity. The NSA has then piggybacked off those cookies to identify targets for hacking. Augury also contains so-called NetFlow data, which creates a picture of traffic flow and volume across a network. That can include which server communicated with another, which is information that may ordinarily only be available to the server owner themselves or to the internet service provider that is carrying the traffic. That NetFlow data can be used for following traffic through virtual private networks and show the server that they are ultimately connecting from. Team Sinru obtains this NetFlow data from ISPs or internet service providers. In return, Team Sinru provides the ISPs with threat intelligence. That transfer of data is likely happening without the informed consent of the ISPs users, you and me. A source familiar with the NetFlow data previously told Motherboard that, quote, the users almost certainly do not know, unquote, their data is being provided to Team Simru, who then sells access to it. It is not clear where exactly Team Simru obtains the PCAP and other more sensitive information, whether that's from ISPs or another method. Yeah, so this is a much longer article, but what it seems to be saying is that this little-known company is paying internet service providers to tap all of their network traffic. And in response, they give them threat intelligence information, which helps them protect their network. So great, that's a nice trade-off. But then this company is taking this highly detailed data. In some cases, I mean, a PCAP data is basically everything. All the information you're sending or receiving from your computer is contained in that PCAP data. Now, if you're lucky, it's an HTTPS connection so that the contents of that PCAP data is, is encrypted, but all the metadata is all still right there. This is really scary. I mean, this, this, this is a lot of extremely detailed information and I can't believe first that they can manage to store this many petabytes of information because that is a lot of data and, and then turn around and resell it. That's, it's just, it's just got to stop. I don't, we, this cannot be legal. We we've got to, we've got to disallow this. I don't know what else to say. If you want more information, uh, again, as always, there's links to the full article in the show notes. All right, and next up, I've got yet another article about data abuse and collection by the U.S. government. This is from Engadget, and it's about data that is seized from people's phones as they cross into the United States. 
If a traveler's phone, tablet, or computer ever gets searched at an airport, American border authorities could add data from their device to a massive database that could be accessed by thousands of government officials. U.S. Customs and Border Protection leaders have admitted to lawmakers in a briefing that its officials are adding information to a database from as many as 10,000 devices every year, the Washington Post reports. Further, 2,700 CBP officers can access the database without a warrant and without having to record the purpose of their search. These letters were revealed in a letter Senator Ron Wyden wrote to CBP Commissioner Chris Magnus, where the lawmaker also said that CBP keeps any information it takes from people's devices for 15 years. In the letter, Wyden urged the commissioner to update CBP's practices so that device searches at borders are focused on suspected criminals and security threats instead of allowing, quote, indiscriminate rifling through Americans' private records without suspicion of a crime, unquote. Wyden says CBP takes sensitive information from people's devices, including text messages, call logs, contact lists, and even photos and other private information in some cases. While law enforcement agencies are typically required to secure a warrant if they want to access the contents of a phone or any other electronic device, border authorities are exempted from having to do the same. Wyden also pointed out that travelers searched at airports, seaports, and border crossings aren't informed of their rights before their devices are searched, and if they refuse to unlock their electronics, authorities could confiscate and keep them for five days. As the Post notes, a CBP official previously went on record to say that the agency's directive gives its officers the authority to scroll through any traveler's device in a quote-unquote basic search. If they find a quote-unquote reasonable suspicion that a traveler is breaking the law or doing something that poses a threat to national security, they can run a more advanced search. That's when they can plug in the traveler's phone, tablet, or PC to a device that copies their information, which is then stored in the automated targeting system database. CBP Director of Office of Field Operations, Aaron Boker, told the publication that the agency only copies people's data when quote-unquote absolutely necessary. Boker didn't deny that the agency's officers can access the database, though. He even said that the number was bigger than what CBP officials told Wyden. 5% of CBP's 60,000 personnel have access to the database, he said, which translates to 3,000 officers and not 2,700. So let me recap this. Basically, what they're saying is that in the United States, the, the CBP, the Customs and Border Protection Agency, can basically say uh, on their, of their own volition, if they determine that you look funny, they can take your device and do an advanced search, which could copy potentially all the data off of your device. Think of everything that's on your iPhone right now. Pictures, text messages, all that stuff. They can copy all that stuff into their database, which can stay there for 15 years and is accessible by up to 3,000 officers at CBP without a warrant. That is ridiculous. But here's where it gets crazy. What a lot of people don't realize is that in the United States, the quote-unquote U.S. border extends 100 miles into the country. So anybody within that 100-mile range of a U.S. border can be searched by CBP in this manner. And the ACLU did a report on this, and there's a link uh, in the show notes. And it turns out if you look at what, if you look at what is contained in the first 100 miles within the U.S. borders, that that is actually about two thirds of the U.S. population. 200 million people live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. And this article is focused on U.S. citizens. If you're not a U.S. citizen, you have even fewer rights, believe it or not. So if you're go if you're at the U.S. border and you're not a U.S. citizen coming in, uh, they can deny you entry. 
you've flown all the way here, you're trying to get in. And then they could just say, if you're not going to show us your devices and let us potentially remove all the data from them, you could just turn around and go back home now. So that leads me to this next article from the Washington Post. Uh, and it talks about how to prevent the copying of your phone's content. It starts off the article kind of repeating some of the stuff I just said, but I want to get to the meat of the article, which talks about how you can at least partially protect yourself from this. So not keen on potentially opening your contacts, call logs, and messages to thousands of government employed strangers. Here's what you could do before hitting customs. Unlike other law enforcement, border authorities don't need a warrant to search your device. They may conduct a basic search in which they scroll through your device inspecting texts, photos, and anything else they can easily access, even if they don't suspect you of wrongdoing. But if an agent suspects you pose a, quote, national security concern, unquote, they can run an advanced search using a digital forensics tool to copy the data from your device. How you prepare to cross the border with your devices depends on what risks you're willing to tolerate, says Nathan Fried Wessler, Deputy Project Director for the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. That's a mouthful, and I've interviewed Nate several times before. He's a great guy. If you're more worried about agents rifling through your messages and photos in a basic search, removing files from your device would do the trick. In other words, before you go through the border, delete your photos and messages, which, you know, that's not easy to do unless, they're, unless you've backed up somewhere. But anyway, I'll go on. If you're a political dissident, human rights activist, journalist, or anyone else looking to avoid government surveillance or overreach, which should be all of us, your focus will likely be preventing agents from accessing your device at all. So first of all, know your rights. If you're an American citizen, you can refuse to unlock your devices for CBP agents and still enter the country. This may not be clear from the information sheet agents are supposed to give you during the search, which says that the process is quote unquote mandatory. If you decline to cooperate, CBP can hold on to your device. It says detention generally shouldn't last longer than five days, but Hussein, which is a person that was quoted earlier here, which I forgot to mention, uh, says she's spoken with people who didn't get their devices back for months. Non-citizens, meanwhile, aren't guaranteed entry if they decline to unlock their devices. So it says... The fewer devices you travel with, the fewer opportunities for searches, Wessler said. Consider adopting a separate phone or laptop for traveling without sensitive data saved. Power down devices before going through customs. This guards against advanced search tools that may bypass the screen lock on devices left powered on, according to the EFF. Encrypt your data. Encrypted data gets scrambled into a format unreadable to people who don't have the code, in this case, a password. iOS, Android, Windows, and Mac OS all come with built-in full-device encryption options. Most contemporary smartphones are encrypted by default, but make sure you lock your device. Also, set a strong password. The quickest methods to unlock your device, such as Face ID or a weak passcode, are also the least secure. If you decline to unlock your device for a search, CBP may try to unlock it themselves, Wessler said. A strong password with both letters and numbers or a passcode with at least six digits will make this harder. And finally, turn on airplane mode. CBP guidelines instruct agents to review only the data that's stored on the device itself, not all the information apps like Facebook and Google send to the cloud. But if you consent to a search, flipping your device into airplane mode will limit the inspection to what's saved or cached. So basically realize that the personal information accessible via your device isn't just the data that's already on the phone. If your phone is connected to the internet, as phones today are 24-7, then they can also search through things that access data in the cloud, right? Emails that are saved up on the server, you know, maybe cloud photos, 
Facebook posts, Twitter posts, things like that, things that are generally only stored on the web. So if, if you put it into airplane mode, basically the, all those things become inaccessible. So this has actually really stressed me out. I, I, I've in the past, I've done a lot of international travel and since COVID, I haven't really done any, but I will be doing it again soon. And I want, don't like this idea that I can go coming back into my own country, have to worry about what data that the CBP can get. And we're going to talk about this uh, new thing called lockdown mode uh, for the tip of the week that might be useful in cases like this. But yeah, generally speaking, don't take any devices you don't need. Don't keep any data on those devices that you're not willing for the border patrol to see, especially if you can delete that data and then just re-download it later. When you go through, make sure you've got your device locked. Uh, both Android and iOS have an emergency lock mode that will disable biometric stuff. So uh, it will not allow your face or fingerprint to open it. Uh, there's some legal question as to whether or not you can be compelled to use a face or a fingerprint to open a device, but not a passcode. Some people say that because you'd have to kind of verbalize the passcode that you're kind of self-incriminating or being asked to testify against yourself kind of thing. And so some courts have said that, you know, they can't compel you to give up a password, but they might be able to compel you to put your finger on the device or show your face to the device. I'm not sure if that's true, but you should definitely lock it before you go through in, in such a way that it takes a passcode to unlock. That also triggers some extra security on most phones. You know, obviously if you have a pin code, you want to make sure it's a strong one. It can't easily be guessed. I like the idea of putting it in airplane mode. Not sure what would happen if you actually completely turned your device off, because I would think they'd want to inspect it. So if they find it's off, they'll probably ask you to turn it on. Uh, but one advantage to that is if you do turn it off, most phones will require you to enter a passcode to, to unlock it, even if you have Face ID turned on. So this article and everything I've said so far basically is about US citizens returning to the US. When you go to other countries, their laws could be totally different. Now, I would hope that if you're going to the EU, it's better. Uh, EU tends to be a lot better on privacy than the US. But if you're flying to some other country, you're going to hit this exact same problem when you go there. And if you're not a citizen of that country that you're going to, you're in this situation where that company could refuse to allow you entrance unless you give them access to your phone or your iPad or your computer. That's That scares the hell out of me. Not that I've got a lot to hide. I just don't want them poking around. And I sure as heck don't want them taking a snapshot of all the data on my device and storing it for 15 years and giving it warrantless access to thousands of agency employees. This is the kind of thing that just freaks me out, drives me nuts. So whenever I travel abroad, I'm going to have to come up with my own plan for what I'm going to be able to do because it's this is just going to haunt me. All right, two more articles, and I'll try to get through these quickly, and then we'll get to the tip of the week. All right, this is from The Markup, and it's about data collecting in your car, which I've talked about before, but this is a really long article with a lot of detail. So I'm just going to give you the highlights here. If you're at all interested or worried about this, definitely read the whole article because it's got lots and lots of interesting details. All right, so here we go. Today's cars are akin to smartphones with apps connected to the internet with that collect huge amounts of data, some of which is highly personal. Most drivers have no idea what data is being transmitted from their vehicles, let alone who exactly is collecting, analyzing, and sharing that data, and with whom. A recent survey of drivers by the Automotive Industries Association of Canada found that only 28% of respondents had a clear understanding of the types of data their vehicle produced, and the same percentage said they had a clear understanding of who had access to that data. That sounds awfully high to me. <laughs> I bet it's a lot lower than that. Welcome to the world of connected vehicle data, an ecosystem of dozens of businesses you never knew existed. The markup has identified 37 companies that are part of a rapidly growing connected vehicle data industry that seeks to monetize such data in an environment with few regulations governing its sale or use. 
While many of these companies stress that they are using aggregated or anonymized data, the unique nature of location and movement data increases the potential for violations of user privacy. The following is a typical data flow scenario for a vehicle with a factory installed cellular connection, which by the way is basically every new car made today. Once a driver gets into a car, dozens of sensors emit data points that flow to the car's computer. The driver door is unlocked. A passenger is in the driver's seat. The internal cabin temperature is 86 degrees. The sunroof is opened. The ignition button is pushed. A trip has started from this location. These data points are processed by the car's computers and transmitted via cellular radio back to the car manufacturer's servers. As the trip continues, additional information is collected. The vehicle location and speed, whether the brakes are applied, which song is playing on the entertainment system, whether the headlights are on or the oil level is low. The data then begins its own journey from the car manufacturer to companies known as vehicle data hubs and on through the connected vehicle data marketplace. The 37 companies identified by the markup do not make up the total universe of industry players, but the products they create and services they provide illustrate how the industry works and the breadth of its reach. The companies each play a unique role and some play multiple roles. They fall into several categories. And actually at this point, the, there's a lot of graphics on this article that explain these categories. I'm not going to go into that in detail here. A wash in vehicle data, most car manufacturers or OEMs, that is original equipment manufacturers, found themselves in an unfamiliar role. And this is a quote from Andrew Jackson, who's a research director at this Ptolemus Consulting Group. He says, quote, what has given rise to the industry is that most OEMs have recognized that they are better at making cars than they are at processing and handling data, unquote. This created an opening for a new kind of third-party data company, vehicle data hubs, which are at the center of the connected vehicle data market. Vehicle data hubs ingest vehicle and movement data from several different sources, from the OEMs, from other connected vehicle data providers, directly from vehicles using aftermarket hardware, such as the onboard diagnostic or OBD dongle, or from smartphone apps. The companies normalize the data and offer it to customers in the form of a dashboard or insights derived from the analysis or other data products. Andrea Amico, who I've interviewed before, is the founder and CEO of Privacy for Cars, an automated data privacy company. And this is a quote from Amico. He says, quote, so there's many sources out there. Their business proposition is to collect all this data, create massive databases, try to standardize this data as much as possible, and literally sell it. So that's their business model, unquote. Many vehicle data hubs market their massive troves of data for applications including insurance, traffic management, electric vehicle infrastructure planning, fleet management, advertising, mapping, city planning, and local intelligence and location intelligence. Many also promote their data as crucial to the future application of autonomous vehicles. When used to produce insights, the data is usually aggregated. The vehicle data may also be made available through an application programming interface or an API, which allows customers to integrate the data into their own apps and services. Many of these companies stress the steps they take to protect driver privacy. These protections generally come in two forms, anonymizing or aggregating driver data and clear consent controls, which I would argue with. But due to the sensitive nature of movement and location data, risks are high for violating user privacy. Bennett Cyphers, a staff technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, said, quote, The more different ways you're being measured in your vehicle, the more likely it is that someone can take a stream of data and use the characteristics of all those different data points to fingerprint a particular user or a particular vehicle, unquote. Cyphers said that the amount of personal data collected in combination with a lack of regulation for its sale and use is troubling. And a final quote from Bennett, he says, quote, 
When you see the volume of data that's up for sale and the lack of regulation in the vast majority of American states regarding how companies can use data, it seems like a match made in privacy hell, unquote. So not a lot to add to that. I've talked about this issue before. Uh, Your cars are basically cell phones with wheels. They've got a built-in cellular modem, which is transmitting data and downloading data from time to time. It probably updates its own software. And a lot of that is harmless and can be useful. But also your car is chock full of sensors, lots of sensors, including probably GPS. And this information is being collected en masse and shared with who knows whom. The only solution to this that I can see is regulations. Did you ever look at the privacy policy for your car or try to find the privacy settings in your car? I'm guessing you probably didn't even know that either of those two things existed. But at least now you know. All right, one more article, then we'll get to my tip of the week. This is from Protocol. And this is yet another creepy use for artificial intelligence and facial recognition. When college instructor Angela Dancy wants to decipher whether her first-year English students comprehend what she's trying to get across in class, their facial expressions and body language don't reveal much. And this is a quote from from Angela. She says, quote, Even in an in-person class, students can be difficult to read. Typically, undergraduates don't communicate much through their faces, especially a lack of understanding, unquote. Dancy uses tried-and-true methods such as asking questions to identify their quote-unquote muddiest point, a concept or idea she said students still struggle with, following a lecture or a discussion. Quote, I ask them to write it down, share it, and we address it as a class for everyone's benefit, unquote. But Intel and Classroom Technologies, which sells virtual school software called Class, think there might be a better way. The companies have partnered to integrate an AI-based technology developed by Intel with Class, which runs on top of Zoom. Intel claims this system can detect whether students are bored, distracted, or confused by assessing their facial expressions and how they're interacting with educational content. And this is a quote from Michael Chasen, who's co-founder and CEO of Classroom Tech uh, Technologies. Uh, says, quote, we can give the teacher additional insights to allow them to better communicate, unquote. And he said teachers have had trouble engaging with students in virtual classroom environments through the pandemic. His company plans to test Intel's student engagement analytics technology, which captures images of students' faces with a computer camera and computer vision technology and combines it with contextual information about what a student is working on at that moment to assess a student's state of understanding. Intel's partnership with Class is a research proof-of-concept undertaking, said Sinem Aslan, a research scientist at Intel who helped develop the technology. And this is a quote from Aslan. Aslan says, quote, We are trying to enable one-to-one tutoring at scale, unquote, adding that the system is intended to help teachers recognize when students need help and to inform how they might alter educational materials based on how students interact with the educational content. Another quote from Aslan, quote, High levels of boredom will lead students to completely zone out of, a, uh, of educational content, unquote. But critics argue that it's not possible to accurately determine whether someone is feeling bored, confused, happy, or sad based on their facial expressions or other external signals. Some researchers have found that because people express themselves through tens or hundreds of subtle and complex facial expressions, bodily gestures, or physiological signals, categorizing their state with a single label is an ill-suited approach. Other research indicates that people communicate emotions such as anger, fear, and surprise in ways that vary across cultures and situations, and how they express emotion can fluctuate on an individual level. The classroom is just one arena where controversial emotional AI is finding its way into everyday tech products and generating investor interest. It's also seeping into delivery and passenger vehicles and virtual sales and customer service software. 
After Protocol's report last week on the use of this technology on sales calls, Fight for the Future, which is a, a great organization, launched a campaign urging Zoom not to adopt this technology in its near ubiquitous video conferencing software. Educators and advocacy groups have raised alarms regarding excessive student surveillance and privacy invasions associated with facial recognition deployed in schools for identification and security purposes. Those concerns have accelerated as AI-based software has been used more often than ever during the pandemic, including technologies that monitor student behavior in hopes of preventing cheating during virtual testing and systems that track content that students view on their laptops in an effort to detect whether they are at risk of self-harm. Class already tracks how often students raise their hands during a session and offers a quote-unquote proctor view feature that lets teachers monitor what students are viewing on their computers if the students agree to share their desktop screen with instructors. As virtual class became the norm in the past couple years, a debate emerged among educators over whether or not to require students to turn on their cameras during class. But in order to capture students' facial expressions, Intel technology would need those cameras turned on. So I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I think that pretty much speaks for itself. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And I know that AI systems are getting better. There probably will come a day when these AI systems will be able to, you know, read a person's body language to give indicators, you know, as to whether or not they're lying or whether or not they're stressed out. And yeah, they might be helpful, but we've got to be really, really careful on how we use these things. And I would say we shouldn't be using them at all on minors because they probably aren't given a choice. And given the fact that they're minors, that, you know, that choice may fall to the parents, which, you know, that I just don't think that's right. So we've got to be really, really careful about this stuff. So I'm just trying to keep you guys apprised of what's going on so you can be informed. All right. So that wraps up the news. And my tip of the week this week, as I told you, uh, I was going to talk about some really cool iOS 16 privacy and security features. So iOS 16 is the brand new operating system release for the Apple iPhone. It was released just a week or so ago when the new iPhones were released, and it's got a lot of great features, um, but there's some particularly cool security and privacy features that I want to call your attention to. Now, I'm a Mac guy. Uh, uh, there's been some new Android features as well. I actually looked at Android 13, didn't see there's a whole lot of really interesting features there to talk about. Uh, if I'm wrong, <laughs> send me some feedback and I'll try to cover those. Uh, but I, you know, I, I admit I'm, I'm a Mac person, so I know tend to know more about uh, these the Apple products. So anyway, I, I think Apple's doing a great job and they've added some really cool features. So let me just briefly talk about these. If you want more, I wrote a blog article about this. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already gotten this in your inbox. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of briefly go through it here. If you want more details, please check out the blog article. So one of the big new features in iOS 16 is this feature called passkeys. It's part of a new technology that's kind of generally referred to as passwordless. Um, it's not really passwordless, but it's passwords that you don't have to worry about. So in that sense, from your perspective, there are no passwords. Uh, but the really cool thing about this is it's, is it's finally, hopefully, going to replace passwords. We all hate passwords. As humans, we are horrible at remembering passwords, so we don't. We pick ones that we can remember, which means that they're guessable by the bad guys. That's bad. Or what we should be doing is using password managers to generate unique, strong passwords and let the password manager worry about uh, remembering them and filling them in. But this new technology promises to bypass all of that. And it's a new standard called FIDO2. Fast Identity Online is what FIDO stands for. FIDO2 is a new spec. Web AuthN is related to this. Those are all technical standards, which I'm not going to get into here. But basically what happens is, instead of having a shared secret, a password that I know and the website I'm going to knows, 
uh, that I have to log in with and, it, and I put in my password and it checks it against what it thinks is my password. And if they match, then I am who I say I am. That's currently how authentication works. The problem is, is now we have a shared secret and the, the website we're going to has to keep that secret secret. And if there's a, a, a data breach and those password databases get out, even if they're encrypted, sometimes bad guys can still figure out what the passwords are. So that just makes the attack surface much larger. What this new passkey thing is, is instead of you coming up with a password and having to share it with another site, you generate a pair of keys, a public key and a private key. And this is how much of the internet works today. A lot of our encryption on the internet is done through public and private key pairs. But now we're doing this with passwords. So what this basically means is you generate this key pair. The public key is given to the website where you have an account. And you'll do this when you set up a new account, or you could probably change in the future, you'll be able to change from a password-based account to a passkeys-based account. And so at that time, your device behind the scenes on your behalf, once you've identified yourself to your device with touch ID or face ID or through a pin code, you've proven to your phone that you are who you are. Now the phone will then prove to the website that that you are actually the person holding that device and trying to log in. And so it sends the public key to the other side. So the, the website, let's say amazon.com or google.com or ebay.com or your bank or whatever, they have this public key and they store that. And it's perfectly okay for anybody to see the public key. That's why it's called public. Um, but because of the unique nature of way this public and private key thing works, with the public key, the website can send a challenge, a unique challenge to the device that only the device with a private key can respond to correctly. So now we've totally changed the dynamics. So if bad guys break into any of these websites and steal all these public keys, they're useless. They, don't, they, they can't be used for anything. They can't be used to log into this site. It takes the private key to do that. So anyway, that's the kind of the gist of it. It's really cool. Basically what will happen is when you go to the website, if you create a new account or if you're changing your account from a password-based account to a pass keys-based account, you'll go through this one-time process of generating the keys. That's all done for you by your device. Um, the keys will be, the public key will be sent to the site you're going to. The private key will be stored securely on your device. And then whenever you go back, uh, it, it remains to be seen exactly what the, the, the process is going to be to log in. It could just be as simple as, you know, clicking a button. You might have to scan a QR code. So it's going to be a little bit different, but the key is you don't have to, you don't have to think up passwords. You don't have to remember these passwords and, and the sites you're going to don't have to worry about securely storing these public keys because it's no big deal if they get loose. This is the future. I believe it's going to replace passwords, but it requires websites to participate. So it's going to take time for this to roll out. So even though your iPhone does this, if the site you're trying to log into or create an account on doesn't support it, you're still stuck with using passwords. So my guess is that this is going to roll out pretty quickly. It's a well-defined standard. It's easy to do. It can be done on Android, Mac, Windows, uh, whatever, because it's a standard. So in the next two or three years, you're going to see most major websites start to adopt this and offer this. And it's already supported in iOS for your iPhone. It will soon be supported in Mac OS uh, with Ventura, the next release of Mac OS. So Apple will be all ready to go. And when you start finding these sites, I would definitely recommend switching over to using this new passkeys thing. iOS also has a new feature for taking security updates. It's gotten so bad now that when, you know, when bugs are found and fixed, the, the software updates almost can't get out fast enough. Bad guys, as soon as they learn that there's been a vulnerability fixed, uh, will immediately try to exploit that vulnerability because they know there's a lag between when that software is fixed and when people will actually update their operating systems or, or applications uh, with that fix. 
So there's a period of time when people are getting the news that they need to get these updates and go getting these updates that your devices are vulnerable and the bad guys within hours are, are taking this information and trying to hack as many devices as possible. So we need to reduce the size of that window uh, to as small as possible. And so one of the things Apple's done with iOS is it's got a separate process for emergency security updates and it's enabled by default in iOS 16. And I, obviously I recommend you leave it that way. And so now when these hot updates uh, go out, they can actually update your phone automatically for you. It might require a restart, but at least you know you're gonna be safe uh, as soon as possible. That's great. Two other really big features, and these are ones that honestly, I hope you never have to worry about, but they're really important for certain groups of people. Uh, honestly, I think they're useful for people that are not in these targeted groups. So one is called safety check. And safety check is mostly for people who are in abusive relationships who uh, need to stop sharing with like an abusive significant other. And it actually comes with an emergency reset mode. Like if I, if you need to, you know, get out of Dodge right away and, and you're all of a sudden feeling really vulnerable and you have, as a lot of people do have set up sharing, you know, agreements of sharing photos, sharing passwords, sharing other device characteristics and data with your significant other, and you want to rapidly, quickly cut all that off, this emergency reset feature will let you do that. But it also has a feature where you can just review all the things that you've shared with other people and other services and other apps, which I recommend, honestly, everybody take a look at. This goes back like forever. Like I went and looked at mine and, and it's showing that I've shared photos with people I'd forgotten that I'd done so. And these are probably just online photo albums that I've done with iPhoto that I could revoke now that they've probably long forgotten about. But also may show that you've shared an iCloud account with somebody, maybe as a family sharing feature or things like that. So it, it's a it's a nice little review. So safety check is a great feature, and if nothing else, you can do the manage sharing and access feature, which helps you to review those things and revoke them where you want to. Another really great feature they've just released is called lockdown mode, and this is something that I could definitely see doing, like when I'm going through a border or when I'm traveling traveling internationally with my devices, or let's say going to a hacker conference like DevCon. So lockdown mode is ostensibly targeted at people who are highly targeted by state-sponsored uh, or very well-funded hacking groups. So if you're not rich or famous, or if you're not a dissident or a politician, or maybe a, an investigative journalist, this may not apply to you, at least on a regular ongoing basis. But if you're one of those kind of people that could be directly and specifically targeted by well-funded and highly motivated hacking groups, this feature is for you. And there's a lot of features on your iPhone that are really fun, you know, emojis and previews of articles that people send you links in your text messages and things like that, that are very convenient. But it turns out a lot of those features are the ones that are exploited by these really well-funded and very technically savvy groups. They'll send you a link to your phone when they know there's a vulnerability in your phone that if they, that if they give you just the right link, they can hack your phone. So what some of the features that are turned off by lockdown mode are these automatic previews don't happen. Your phone will not accept a FaceTime call from somebody that you have not previously initiated a call with. Wired connections to your devices are blocked if your phone is locked. So that directly addresses that article that I just talked about with the CBP, because if your phone is on and unlocked and they connect it with a cable to their system, they can download all of your data. This blocks that. There are other safety procedures that are done as well, but basically it turns off some of these convenience features that also happen to be chinks in the armor, ways that a lot of these companies like the NSO group with their Pegasus software 
figured out how to bypass or find bugs in that allowed them to overtake your phone or take your data. And Apple is putting its money where its mouth is. It has actually offered bounties of up to $2 million for anybody who could figure out how to hack an iPhone in lockdown mode. That's great. If there are ways to do that, we want people to find them so Apple can fix it. Honestly, a lot of these trade-offs, I think, are something that everybody could do. I, I'm going to consider using lockdown mode all the time. But if nothing else, I could definitely see enabling this, like I said, when I'm traveling internationally or when I think that you know my device might be in a greater risk than normal. All right, so there's more information than that. That's just a few of the top features. Uh, if you go to my article on this at firewallstonesubdragons.com, you'll see it, and there's links to more information if you are curious. Okay, thanks for hanging in there. That was a lot of information. I know we went long today. But there's your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up. Thanks for hanging in there. Again, I know we had a long list of stuff today. That's because we had the longer than usual time between the last news show and now. Uh, But I've got a couple quick things I want to tell you about. First of all, uh, I am launching Dear Carrie, kind of like Dear Abby. And if you don't know what that is, look it up. (laughs) That means you're young Uh, or maybe not. Uh, located in the US or UK. Anyway, so dear Carrie, so this is where you send me questions and I will answer them on the air. So this will do a few things. First of all, I want to answer your questions. If you've got a burning cybersecurity or privacy question or, you know, something tangentially related to those things, send me that question. I will potentially read it on the air and answer it. These questions will also help me understand what's on your mind. If I get lots of questions about the same thing, then I'll know, hey, maybe I should do a show dedicated to that topic. So it'll serve more than one purpose. Now, to incentivize you to do this, I'm also going to be giving away stuff. Uh, What I give away may vary from time to time, but currently what I'm going to do is for all the people that send me questions, I will put you into a little pool, a little raffle, and I will pull out a name, and the winner will get a free copy of my book. Now, if you're in the United States, I will actually ship you a physical copy of my book. If you're outside the United States, it's just too much of a pain in the butt to do that. I will send you a PDF copy of my book. So that'll give you some incentive to send in some questions. Now, uh, there's some caveats, obviously. Uh, First of all, I'm just going to randomly pick out one winner a month. Doesn't matter how many questions you send me, you can only be entered one time in any given month. And if you do win, you know, for some reasonable amount of time, you won't be able to win again. I'm not sure what that is. You know, six, 12 months, something like that. Uh, It's up to me. I'll figure it out. But, you know, don't expect to flood me with a bunch of questions and get a bunch of books. Second, obviously, it's only for valid questions, you know, don't, don't ask me what time it is or or what the weather forecast is, you know, or something really kind of goofy. I mean, I'm looking for good stuff here. So send me, send me legitimate questions that you have about security and privacy, please. Nothing crazy. You can send those questions to dear Carrie at firewalls. Don't stop dragons.com. That's D E A R C A R E Y dear Carrie at firewalls. Don't stop dragons.com. Now here's another fun twist. If you want, this is a radio show. This is a podcast. If you want to hear your voice on the air, you can actually send me an audio clip of yourself asking the question. And assuming that clip isn't profane or something, I will, if I pick it, I will play it on the air and you can actually hear your voice on the, on the air asking that question. So how do you do that? Well, glad you asked. That brings up another fun thing that I've just started doing. And so I have created my own custom URL shortening service. So like bit.ly or Owly or some of these other ones, uh, I am running a little server at fdsd.me. So that's fdsd as in firewalls don't stop dragons, fdsd.me, M-E. So fdsd.me is my new Earl shortening domain name. And so that will allow me to just quickly tell you, hey, just go to fdsd.me slash 
newsletter, for example, and you can sign up for my newsletter or fdsd.me slash blog to get to my blog or fdsd.me slash support to find out how you can support my efforts here. Or in this case, you can go to fdsd.me slash QNA. That's the letter Q, the letter N, and the letter A. QNA as in Q and A. QNA. If you go to fdsd.me slash QNA, you'll find my blog article that explains all the details on how you can send this to me, how, how to send it to me, what information I need, including ways for you to record a little audio snippet that you can send me as well. So I'm looking forward to get these. I won't promise to read them all. If I get similar questions, I'll probably pick one representative one. And on the news shows, at least, or maybe even on some of the interview shows, if I get a lot of these things, I will try to answer your questions on the air. And once a month, I will dip into the list of everybody who submitted a question uh, and pull out a winner. And currently, those winners will get my books. And, you know, maybe I'll throw in some other swag too, some stickers and stuff like that. So again, for all the details, uh, look in the show notes or go to fdsd.me slash QNA. I got a lot of interviews already in the can coming up. I've got one next week, which will be with Jordan Wines. He's from the Hackasat program, and we're going to be digging into hacking tournaments, things called Capture the Flag tournaments, CTFs. And I know if you might think, well, I'm not a hacker. I don't care. Uh, but it's really actually quite fascinating. And it's something that, honestly, you don't have to be a hacker to play around in. So uh, that'll be a fun one. We'll talk to him next week. Then I've got some other ones. I've got Doug Levin coming up. He's a, a security and privacy person for students K through 12 here in the U.S. I just had a great interview with a, a, a guy named Adrianus from Nord. He's one of their chief privacy guys. That was a very interesting discussion. And of course, the big 300th episode with Bruce Schneier is not long away either. And I'll be doing a big promotion around the 300th episode as well. So stay tuned for that. All right, everybody, I will let you go. It's been long enough. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. Leave a nice review if you haven't. I very much appreciate that. Take care, everybody. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.